been working on all week uh, that led to be, in fact, saying something erroneous, I think, in the first sermon, um, and maybe in the announcement a moment ago, and it's been on my mind, and I went and I looked it up again, and I mean, I tell you, trying to memorize the entire plot of Acts 1 through 15 in one week, it'll, it'll throw you for a loop. But, so does, does Peter die and rise three times or four? And I, I kept asking that question, I kept trying to count, I keep having trouble with it because... One of the events has kind of two jail terms built into it. That probably means nothing to you. Well, let's see if I can get it right this time. So if you're watching this and you saw the first sermon, um, I, I made one big error, particularly in saying that Peter, when he's in prison uh, the first time, is let out by an angel and it's not true. The angel comes to all the apostles the second time. We'll cover that today if that doesn't make sense. But for those of you who were taking notes before, I don't want to... I don't want to mislead you there. So, so today, what are we doing, right? And this this month, this eight weeks, what are we doing? We are we are running to the tomb, right? We're on a journey. We're on a journey together. We're walking toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is real. This is not a story. This is not a game. You and I are baptized in the holy name of the one true God's only Son, who is our King. And we're walking through this veil of tears, anointed to be his everlasting people. And as we do so then, we are running toward our own tomb with the knowledge that came from the apostles when they ran toward Jesus' tomb and found it empty. And so, because he is risen, he is risen indeed. Alleluia. What we find is that everyone who believed that in the early church had a whole lot of confidence running toward their own tomb. And that's my prayer for us here at St. Paul. I have prayers for all of us together as a body, St. Paul, but all of us together as a body at St. Paul are built out of individuals, each of us, in our own journey toward our own tomb. All of us, every single one, and each of these journeys is filled with all sorts of stuff that no one else knows about but you and maybe two or three people closest to you. A battle that you fight every single day in your heart and your mind. And of course, as you get older, your body starts to be part of that struggle, right? It gets, it gets worse and worse in this life as you run toward the tomb. What I want is for us at St. Paul to all be kind of dancing as we go. Because we know that the tomb is but a, but a pit stop. You can call it a portal if you want. It's certainly not the end. It's a place of rest for the Christian. And as we follow then the story of Peter running toward his tomb and we see these multiple symbolic deaths he goes through, so we're going to see that from St. Paul next week, multiple symbolic deaths he goes through. Then twofold out of this series, I want you to know that there is nothing you're going to face in this life that God doesn't have the power to take away in this life and make it all better, like the next day. He has the power to do that for every single thing you face in this life, and then sometimes he doesn't for really good reasons. And you may not know those reasons even in this life, but you are absolutely guaranteed to know those reasons on the day of justification. Or your baptism will stand and make you whole, where the resurrected king will say, well done, faithful servants. And honestly, you're not going to be like, well, tell me about that time with this. It didn't make sense. You're not going to say that. You're going to say, hallelujah, I'm here. It's good. And it's all going to roll into that, that beautiful future we walk toward, running toward your tomb with confidence then. Right? That's the goal here. And I, I believe that every single, can we call them characters of Scripture? That makes them sound like they're cartoons. Uh, every single brother or sister in the church who lived during the first century early church, whose story we're going to look at because they're in the Bible for us to look at, what I hope is that somewhere in that, you see yourself in that person. 
all the things Peter's going to do this morning, I want you to see yourself as just like Peter. In lots of different ways, but specifically in the, being anointed by Jesus Christ as a Christian. And in this way, I don't want us to focus this morning so much on Peter's apostleship, on his, his power, his miracles. I mean, that's all going to be interesting. He's, he's got this Christological thing going on. But like I said in those announcements a little bit ago, I want you to think about, like, where's his wife? His cousins. Uh, what's going on with the people that are kind of talking to him all the time, but whose names aren't mentioned? What is that Christian community like for Peter? As you're going to watch Peter go through a, a, a meteoric rise and fall. Uh, within a short time, he'll become almost in charge of some of the temple. And then he'll have to flee for his life. Uh, and then, well, we'll get there. Okay, we're going to walk through this then. The book of Acts, if you don't have a large print pew Bible, starts on page 909 uh, of your pew Bible. Um, and uh, we're going to glance at, like, tidbits all the way through. We're not going to read the whole book here this morning. Uh, but we're going to look for these symbolic deaths and resurrections of Peter as fulfillments of Christ's death and resurrection. It's already happened in Christ. Peter now is going to reflect that, and what we want to see is how he doesn't get um, slowed down by the trials. And when they throw him in prison, it doesn't make him stop preaching. If anything, every bit of suffering these apostles run into makes them preach louder and makes them preach even more. And we'll see this with, again, St. Paul next week. All right, so for this morning, just for Peter's life, right? This guy was a fisherman. Middle class, lower class, didn't have much, had a wife, worked with some other guys whose dad owned a boat. He gets called by Jesus out of that job, says, I'll make you fish for men instead. He follows Jesus for three years, gives up his livelihood. I mean, from time to time, I believe they went back and fished, but you know, he's not making a living. He's not building a career for sure. What does the family think of all of this? Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. What does Peter's family say of Peter during all of this? But he follows him anyway, all the way to the point where he says, I will not betray you no matter what. And then, of course, he denies him three times uh, the night and day of, of Jesus' cross. And then following that resurrection, right, we saw this last week, he hears about the empty grave, and he runs, because what? This is everything to him. This is everything to him. He left it all behind. He's got nothing left to go back to. And he hears the tomb's empty, and he runs, and unlike John, who just kind of gets to the tomb and looks in, Peter dives into the tomb. Not quite, you know, horizontal, but, but like this, emotionally at least. And this is, this is the joy this is the thing that God's going to do to you. Right? Open your eyes a little bit. Make you want to run. He dives into the tomb. He'll dive into the ocean to get to Jesus on the seashore. Swimming through the waves of abyss and darkness to come to the shore of resurrection. Right, right there is, again, a picture in John's gospel of Peter following Christ by dying and rising. At the end of John's gospel, he will be told he's going to be crucified. Uh, in the midst of all of that going on, he sees Thomas come to faith. He sees James, Jesus' brother, not the apostle, come to faith. Um, he sees over 500 people talk about, at least if he wasn't there, how they saw Jesus risen at the same time. Uh, Paul learns about this and tells us of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, he then uh, is getting signs from Jesus for quite a while, but he's there at the ascension. Right? With, with the other 11, when Jesus disappears in the cloud and the angels say he'll come back just like he came again. Okay, well, that, that was weird. We were just asking him when he was going to start ruling. 
And he took off, right? And, and he says, go back to Jerusalem. So he's there uh, when they go back to Jerusalem, commissioned to baptize all nations uh, in Jesus' name. And what do they do? Well, they, they stay in Jerusalem. They go into an upper room of some kind, and they begin to pray. Now, here's something that I, I don't want to spend too much time on this this morning, but it really is kind of a thing. How do you read the book of Acts? Did the apostles do it right or did they do it wrong? Are we, are we supposed to read this to do what they did? Are we supposed to read this to see that they are, well, a little bit doubting, a little bit incomplete? And the common or the popular myth, I think, of the last 60 or 70 years of the evangelical churches is that the apostles did it wrong. Uh, that they, they didn't do mission the way they were supposed to. Because you see Jesus commissioned them, go into all nations, baptize and teach. And they went back to Jerusalem and went into a room and locked the door. Well, maybe they didn't lock the door. Uh, but they went into a room and they, they prayed. And then Peter started to talk about the Psalms and what the Psalms mean. Which leads me to think Peter was reading the Psalms. Crazy thought. But yeah, I, I, I think that's what it was. And then from the Psalms, they believe that if they're going to go into all nations, then there needs to be 12 of them. Because uh, the Psalms tell that the, the son of destruction will be destroyed. Uh, and Jesus taught them this about Judas. And that his office would remain. And that they needed to put someone else in his office. And so they do this whole thing where they choose a guy. They use lots to figure it out. And they, they put him into his office. His name is Matthias. And you never hear from him again. There is tradition about it, but, but in the Bible, you never hear from them again. So people come along and say, look how stupid the apostles were. Look how stupid Peter was. God had Paul in mind, not Matthias. See, and then I don't know what they say from there, but it is along the lines of we should do more mission, usually. Something like that. You don't talk about Jesus enough. Go get your friends and neighbors to come to church. Sales pitch. Uh, make you feel guilty, tell you to do a sales pitch. That's the way they get you to buy stuff on TV, too, a lot of the times. But to the church to do this is wicked, I think. <laughs> completely wicked. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the apostles are perfect in every way, but I, I think they were piously doing exactly what they were told. They were told by Jesus, go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from on high. That's going to happen at Pentecost. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Peter, instead, then, waiting, is reading the scriptures. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And they're praying together about God sending an answer, and they try to do what seems to be right, and after they do what seems to be right, Pentecost happens. This amazing event where they're driven into the streets and tongues of fire appear on their heads and they preach in, in different uh, languages the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guess who the text at least doesn't say was missing? From Matthias. Matthias was there. I want to say he was probably speaking in tongues like the rest of the apostles. He's an apostle. Right? So I want to dispel that myth. That, that, that somewhere in here there's like the apostles being too stupid to do what Jesus said. No, he's risen from the dead. And after they're anointed with the Holy Spirit especially, there's just no stopping these guys. And that's the whole point. There's no stopping you. Because the same spirit who is in St. Peter is in you. That's a promise from your baptism. That's not me making stuff up. So... Pentecost, Matthias is there, Peter is there. Peter preaches this fantastic, huge sermon that brings about the conversion and baptism of 3,000 individuals. They go from being, what, 25 to 45 people as Christians in the world to 3,000 strong, all in one big event day. After that is where I want us to start looking at text. So next page, if you want to page 909, page 910. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 39. Here's when I want to start building your feel for the early church. Your feel for the early church. What was it like to be in this crew of early Christians who have Jewish heritage? They believe the Old Testament Bible, but now they're finding the Old Testament Bibles come true. Like, it isn't just true for the past. It's come true in the present with this resurrection. What's life like for them? We're going to start at Acts 2, verse 46. This is right after Peter's sermon and then the conversion of many and the living together of, uh, of, of everyone. Uh, it says, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, there's, there's so much there in that little verse just in terms of like what church life was like. You can kind of see pieces of it. Um, the first thing it would be, uh, I like the way that New King James says it better. Um, gladness and simplicity of heart describes their life. Gladness. And simplicity of heart. Uh, this isn't because they somehow just figured out how to, like, well, let's say, um, uh, uh, minimize their life by removing furniture and doing feng shui or something like that. Um, no, no. What happened was they learned the secret of contentment, and just realized that none of it's really that complicated once you realize it's all going to burn anyway, and that we're all alive forever already. Now it's not quite as complicated. You don't have to worry quite as much. Whatever threat comes isn't quite the threat it was before. It's the, the teeth are outside of the dragon's mouth now. Death has lost its sting. So that's simplicity and generous hearts. The, um, but what verse 46 again, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Uh, I think most Lutheran teachers would see the breaking of the bread there is the Lord's Supper. Uh, being participated in. Uh, and what, what you see here then is that the teaching of the church is taking place in a different place than the divine service of the Lord's Supper. And that's because, well, Judaism isn't quite done with Christianity yet. And so instead of meeting in house churches for preaching and the Lord's Supper, they're just meeting in house churches, homes owned by people, where they get together to have the Lord's Supper um, while they go to the temple every day for church. Does that mean all 3,000 people were there every day? No. But the 12 were there every day at the temple where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans are all still running everything. They're still in charge of everything. And they're there day by day keeping teaching the Old Testament as fulfilled in Jesus. And now there's 3,000 of them. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 leads into chapter 3 verse 1. Where Peter and John, I'm going to read this right here. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And every day at nine, there's church. Peter and John are going to church where every day they go to church, but they're surrounded by 80% of the church that doesn't believe what the church teaches. Forgot to add this part. We're going to go back to the text in just a second. Keep your finger there. But can you imagine for a second? Oh, let's, let's take Holy Family. Let's not pick on the evangelicals. Let's pick Holy Family, Roman Catholic Church at the center of Rockford. Most of you have some semblance of that building that would help on Alpine. Big place, new front, everything, and millions of dollars just spent on it to make it beautiful. It's gorgeous. 
So imagine that, like, uh, you know, I don't know, I do something weird, and I go, I, I stop being a pastor here, and I go over there, and I just start being a Lutheran at their church, and they don't do anything about it, and I convert, like, I don't know, 25% uh, of the congregation to believing that the Pope is the Antichrist, and we start a whole new service, which we're doing together, at the same time as the service in the main sanctuary, but we're just actually way back in the parish hall, and we're doing our own church thing. There's less of us than them, but there's a whole lot of us. And, and what does the bishop think about this? Right? You see the politics that are coming into play. As 3,000 Christians are coming and going from the temple every day, Peter is going in to teach as normal, following Pentecost, and a lame man from birth, that's verse 2, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. This is a beggar who can't walk. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, right? You got any cash on you guys? I, I need to fix my car or something like that. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. Right? A little, little Elisha moment here, if you remember that one, where he looks at Hazael. Uh, the gaze that breaks him, right? Peter directs his gaze at him and says, look at us. And verse 5, uh, the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, right? There's a big crowd. Hey, I'm going to talk to you now. Now he looks at him. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Okay, right there at the gate to this temple, big church that they kind of belong in, he heals a cripple. This cripple's there. Everyone saw him today. Everyone saw him yesterday. But now, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So they're headed to where everybody meets for church with this cripple now dancing. He's dancing through the temple. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico is a large, large space where people can gather, but it's not the primary space in the temple. My hunch is this is where they were going already anyway. It's where the 3,000 or some odd, whatever number it was, Christians were there that day. Peter, Jay, Peter John, and, and our beggar, who's been freed, are going into that space. And there's a whole crowd following them now because he just healed this, this beggar, right? So Peter turns around and he preaches. Huh? And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power we made this man walk? He goes and he preaches Jesus. He's going to preach Jesus all the way down to the end of chapter 3. Wherein he will then get arrested. So this, this one's just, just too much. Chapter 4, verse 1. You see it there? As they were speaking to the people, he's got this huge crowd. He's preaching. The beggar's still there. And the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, all three factions, we're done with you guys. All three fractions came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So there's 3,000 or so in the space worshiping. Beggar comes in. Peter starts preaching. 2,000 people convert, and they arrest him in the middle of the sermon and throw him in prison. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priest's family. And they set them in their midst, and they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? He will say, by Jesus' name, we did this. He will say, the one who you crucified is risen from the dead. He confesses to them the truth. Verse 13, look at that one. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. After a little more conversation, they charge Peter and John not to speak anymore, but they can't do anything about the miracle. It's still there, and the crowds are all still there. The temple is always a little bit of a, a riotous place, or it's in danger of being a riotous place. And so they end up letting them go. Uh, they let them go, uh, and verse 22, we're going to pick up. Uh, verse 23, excuse me. When they were released... They went to their friends, this is Peter and John, right? They get out of prison, uh, they go to their friends and report what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's a powerful, powerful set of things right there. I'm not going to take us back through all of it, but uh, were they at Solomon's porch? Is that where they went to talk to their friends? I like to imagine it that way, but it might have been another house somewhere. But I like to imagine that they, they get released. It's early morning. They were arrested yesterday. They go to church just like normal, 9 o'clock. Hey, everybody, here we are. And everyone's like, let's pray. <laughs> and they pray, uh, and they have preaching, and they have songs. It's kind of a normal church service. We get the summary of it, though, that at the peak of this, in which the apostles, Peter, who has been arrested, is saying, may I still keep talking. Let them never silence me. No matter what they do to me, the whole place shakes. And if that's the temple, it's the whole temple. I should tell you, something's over and something's new. The Spirit of God comes down like unto Pentecost, and now it fills everyone else that's there in the room. Uh, there's going to be another event in the temple courts in just a little while, but before we get there, first, Peter does have some other things he does now, right? Think of that, his imprisonment and his release, 
as his first Christ-like death and resurrection. And now following his imprisonment and release, he's going to go and... um, That card is out of order. Forgive me. Uh, He's going to go and uh, spread a certain type of judgment upon the world. So we're going to see several stories here in a row. We're not going to dig into all of them. But at the end of chapter 4, you see the new kingdom has no want or need. Everybody's got enough under Peter's reign at Solomon's porch. It's kind of amazing. No rich, no poor. If you're rich, you give what you need to whoever needs it. Now, they're not working in dollars, so it's a completely different system. No digital currency or any of that. But it was a foretaste of the feast to come. In the midst of all of this, uh, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the liars and hypocrites who with seared consciences deceive Peter to his face in church, who Peter then admonishes them with judgment. He brings judgment day just a little bit early for a moment for Ananias and Sapphira, who both end up dead uh, as a result of that. And then, in the midst of that, though, remember all of this in Solomon's porch, many signs and wonders are being done. Can you look at chapter 5, verse 12? Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, or porch, uh, big, big room, right, with open air. None of the rest dared join them, right? So after Ananias and Sapphira's death, uh, there's like a slowdown in the conversions, right? But the people held them in high esteem. All the Jews who are not in charge think the Christians are all right. They're not anti-Christian yet, right? But the people in charge, you know, we're we're getting there. Uh, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So there are believers, right? That is not joining the inside circles. Multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. I mean, again, King Peter, ruling from Solomon's porch. But how does he rule? Well, he rules by proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not really king. Uh, It's King Jesus reigning through the preaching of his word, giving hope to all, and giving these signs and wonders, these particular miracles, as proof that the temple that they're in isn't really the thing anymore. The thing, in fact, is that breaking of bread in the church that's meeting outside the temple. And that's going to come back again uh, later, of course, in, in the church history story. But in the meantime, they are running a quarter of the temple. And they, they got it. They're going to take over someday. It's getting so busy, in fact, they've got to bring on other people. So chapter 6, chapter 7. You have the introduction of the diaconate. Uh, the diaconate is the, the, the sending of preachers who are not apostles. So the first pastors. Uh, the apostles realize they can't do it all. How do we give other men authority to do it with us? And that has to do with the distribution of food. But as we see very quickly, it also has to do with baptism. Philip, we'll talk about Philip next week. Um, and also then with, well, preaching, because that's what Stephen does. So right after this uh, giving of seven other men to help the twelve through the church in chapter 6, in chapter 7, we see Stephen, one of those men, murdered publicly by a guy named Saul. And actually, Saul is the hero of the book of Acts. took a long time to get here. It's all set up. Peter's a setup for, for Paul. They go together, two sides of the same coin, Old Testament, New Testament, kind of reality, a little bit here, Jew and Gentile and all this, yeah. Um, But 
This moment here where Saul, his story begins, is a horrible place. And we'll get into that next week too. But it begins with Saul organizing the entire leadership of the temple complex to get this guy killed publicly. They, they stone him to death in front of everybody, Stephen. And from that moment on, Saul begins to arrest anybody who's a Christian publicly. So then what happens after the persecution or after the, the martyrdom of season, Stephen is the persecution um, of the church entirely. Uh, I think we can look at that at chapter 8, verse uh, 31. Is that right? I'm trying to find it. Nope, that's completely wrong. So don't even turn there at all. I'll just summarize that part. So, um, following the death of Stephen, Saul has power within the local community to take anybody who looks like they're joining the Christian cause and arrest them. And the long and short of this is that everybody except for the twelve start leaving. So you have this group of 5,000 plus people worshiping at Solomon's portico, and like week by week, there's less people coming to church. And they're not stopping being Christians, they're just going, you know, to Antioch, where there's Christians. There, you know, eventually. They're going out. Philip, as he goes, converts an Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, so as people are leaving, conversions are happening. They're not leaving their Christianity, but they're leaving Solomon's porch. The 12 remain in Solomon's porch, and that's the story I really want to want to focus on um, next here. Uh, which, oh, I did it, I did it, I did it, didn't I? I skipped over it. Yes. Can you back up in your storyline a little bit? Forgive me here. So we're going to back up before Stephen and see the spread of the Spirit from Peter after his first imprisonment to the apostles for their next set. Um, that's going to happen in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, as these many signs and wonders are being done, right? uh, go ahead and read there. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the people's, excuse me, the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go. And stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. All right, again. So they're going together day by day into Solomon's portico. Things are still going really well. And now everybody's doing healings, right? All the apostles are doing healings. And the public powers get so upset with this um, that they go and they arrest them. When they arrest them, they put them on trial, uh, and not really, they put them into jail overnight, right? You heard that. An angel of the Lord comes to them, and he lets them out. And this is, I guess, uh, my favorite part. I feel like I haven't brought us here very well, but this is so amazing, right? You're these 12 pastors preaching to this group of 3,000 people. You get arrested for what you're saying. You get put in prison. That night, an angel shows up. He lets you out. He says, go back to the exact same place where you just were. So the people who arrested them wake up the next morning, and where are all 12? In the same place, preaching the same thing, refusing to be silent at all. They arrest them again. Here's where they try them. They charge them. They are let off the hook a little bit by a guy named Gamaliel to give some advice to not murder them just yet, that that might make Christianity more powerful. And so they beat them instead and let them go. As they let them go, they rejoice 
They say, thank God we were beaten for Jesus' name's sake. That's an amazing thought right there. And they go back to Solomon's porch where Stephen's story starts. Okay. I wanted to give that to you because that's the second death and resurrection of Peter. He does it by himself, jail, and then release. He does it with all the 12 in jail, set free by the angel, tried, beaten, and released. Then the spread of everything to Stephen, Philip, the others, the persecution of the church, the sending out of the people away from Jerusalem. Things are getting better further away, but getting worse in Jerusalem. And then this is where um, our story uh, and our text we heard read a while earlier really then knuckles in. Because from Acts chapter 8 to 11, the story of Saul converting to Paul really takes precedence. So Peter kind of vanishes for a moment uh, until chapter 12. Here in chapter 12, uh, if you look on page 920, we'll have the text that we have as our focus for the day. Mm. All right, here this here, and here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1. About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. What's key here is that you have this, this new faction coming in. Before you had Pharisees, Sadducees, and Pilate, right? You had the, the Romans. Here comes Herod. Um, Herod, you might remember, isn't exactly friendly with the Jews, that is, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're not on great terms with each other. Herod is a descendant of Esau. He's not even a Jew. Uh, and he rules uh, like a Greek. And so uh, for him here, this whole story, it goes all the way to the uh, end of chapter 12, Herod's story um, is about how he is politically a fox and will try to hurt Christianity to gain some worldly power for himself. He thinks that if he can please his political opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by hurting the Jews, excuse me, hurting the Christians with his power, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees will give him a little back rubbing in the other direction with terms of the rule in the area. And so he starts... And by killing James, the brother of John, with the sword. Doesn't tell us much more than how or when that happened. But keep in mind then, for all of the arrests that Paul, Saul was doing, all of the fleeing of Jerusalem that was taking place, no one else has been killed since Stephen. Nobody's been killed since Stephen until, until this guy James, who, while on the one hand, is kind of like, James the Apostle, why don't I know him so well? And he didn't write the book of James. Well, he's the brother of John. Remember that? Whom Jesus named them both Boernogenes, something like that. That's Mark, you know, sons of thunder in Greek. Uh, and so, I mean, I like thinking of this here. Who's the first apostle to die? Well, the eldest son of thunder, that's him. Hey, remember how James and John went to Jesus and said, can we drink the cup and sit beside you on your right hand and your left? And Jesus is like, can you? And they're like, yes. Well, well James found out, didn't he now? And I want to believe on that day when James sees that sword coming, he's not afraid, he's not running, he's not surprised. He's ready. He's ready to give this witness and testimony, and so is Peter. When, when Herod saw, verse 3, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. I find this super interesting. Maybe it's not that much to you, but, like, why would he tell us that? Oh, by the way, it's during Passover. Like, this, you only got so much paper. Now, why does he tell us that? Well, Peter has uh, gone through, I didn't kind of cover this today, uh, a discovery that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but is also for the Gentiles, that is, for those who are not circumcised. 
And in another couple chapters, the last time we'll see Peter, he'll be at the Jerusalem Council, which is about whether or not Christians have to be circumcised to be Christians, which is really about whether or not we need to keep the Old Testament law perfectly to be saved. And what we have here is Peter being kept from by God. God is keeping Peter from keeping the Old Testament law by the hand of Herod. He keeps Peter from going to Christmas Eve Mass, effectively. And for Peter, this is like to lose your faith, or it would be, except for what? Well, he is risen. Huh? He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Well, notice that this is the, the whole goal here is to see Peter and yourself. And Peter, where's his wife right now? He's in prison. His friend James, who he's known for four or five years, just got maybe longer, just got murdered by the sword. He has a mega church inside of another church that he's supposed to be caring for. He can do miracles left and right, but again, now he's thrown in prison. And verse 4, when he had seized him, Herod seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers. Well, you know, these guys have escaped before, right? The angels have let them out before. What couldn't have been angels? Nah, four squads will do the job. So four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. He's going to crucify him. He's going to kill him, just like Jesus was killed. To please his enemies. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Christians are still gathering. They're still praying. And now, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, just, just right there then, like really, like, could Jesus not have saved him at any time? Yeah, the answer is obviously yes. I mean, can, I, can I get an amen? amen? I'm asking, can Jesus not have saved him at any time? Yes. Say amen. Can Jesus not have saved him at any time? Amen, amen he could have. And he leaves him till the last night before he's about to be killed. In chains between multiple soldiers. What's Peter feeling? I know what I'd be feeling. I'd be asking, where's, where's my God? I'd be asking, what on earth are you doing, sir? <laughs> like, I thought I understood what is going on. But uh, maybe, maybe by this point, Peter's like, oh, every time I go into jail, it gets better. I come out and more happens. So I'm, I'm not too worried about it. Does he think he's going to die and rise again? I mean, you've got to believe that on some level, don't you? And then, and then again, you know, God can change any instant in an instant. Uh, verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Yeah, it's just, it's just beautiful by itself, really. I mean, I get to see it. I hope you can see it. I can see it. Um, and there's a neat little bit where you can kind of see Jacob wrestling with uh, the angel of Jesus Christ by the Javik River uh, late at night one night. And uh, they can't seem to declare a winner by wrestling until God strikes Jacob on the hip. And you remember that? So there's a little bit of that here, a conversion from deceiver to one who God fights for. That's from Jacob to Israel. Um, but also just the, the magic of it all. Like he, oh, he wakes up and then the chains just fall off his hands. And as they go past all of the soldiers and the guards who are sleeping, who are looking the other way, I don't know, but the locked gates, they just swing right open as they walk out. And the text tells us, we're not going to go verse by verse here, but the text tells us that Peter's kind of like, I'm dreaming. <laughs> it's not real. He, it, it doesn't feel real to him until he's out of the street and the angel is walking beside him. 
How tall is he? How bright? I don't know. He's walking beside him, and then he's gone. And Peter kind of, like, comes to. And he has a long statement here. I'll read that long statement. What is it? Um, he says, verse 11, Thou, I am sure, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, what he says is, Oh, that's right. God's with me. And that's what I want you to take home today. I want you to go, oh, that's right. God's with me. And so when the bad things happen, like they, well, throw apostles in prison, I don't expect us to go to prison soon. But you never know. By the end of my life, I might be as a preacher. It could happen. But God's with me. Or the good things. When the good things happen, don't be surprised. Of course they happen. God's with you. God's with us. Uh, his angels are watching over you. He commands all the heavenly powers, including the stars in the sky and the trees themselves, to be on your side. Uh, the whole creation groans with eager expectation, waiting for you to have your new body. And they know what's happened now, as far as creation can know. They know that the new body in Jesus is ascending to heaven, and that you feast upon this. I mean, don't look for the sparrow outside your front window to, like, bow and acknowledge you as a Christian, but believe it knows. Not in a way like you know, but the whole creed, God sent the sparrow. Maybe you got to kill it, maybe you don't, but the sparrow knows who God is, and creation knows who you are. You are sons of the living God. He's with you. The angels have charge over you. What happens next? Peter kind of vanishes, right? You got the story part with the, they go to the house. I like this. It's fun. All right, Rhoda. Rhoda's cute. She opens the door. Oh, it's Peter. Shuts the door in his face. You know, <laughs> um, but there's also a, this whole, like, Peter reflecting Christ dying, rising thing. There's a whole story about a woman who meets Jesus after he is risen from the dead. First person to meet Jesus and doesn't recognize him. And goes away. Right? Mary. Uh, so here you have a reflection. Uh, but Peter basically gets into the house, and he says, i got to go now. And he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. And we don't really know what happens next. We go back to Paul's story for quite a while. We see Peter one more time. It's in Acts uh, chapter 15. This is the first Christian council at Jerusalem. It's where they solved uh, the challenge of circumcision. Uh, there's, a, there's a ton that's there. Uh, and you can kind of skim over it. I'm not going to have us look at it uh, verse by verse. But as that council is trying to decide what to do, in turn, uh, Paul and Barnabas stand up and talk about the Gentile believers after their first missionary journey. Um, Peter stands up and talks about excuse, excuse me, uh, his experience with Cornelius and the fact that we can't keep the law ourselves as Jews, he says. So how can we make others try to do this? And then uh, what's kind of amazing is that uh, James, James stands up and he kind of concludes the meeting. And the letter that's written that goes out is, is from James. So what does this mean? It, the only time that Peter shows up in the gospel, or excuse me, in the book of Acts now, it, he's kind of a footnote. Right? He was the whole story. He was king of Solomon's portico. But now he just vanishes. And Solomon's portico, well, it gets given to James, actually. That, that is at the end of the text that we heard read. Um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, uh, verse 17. It's a little long as a verse. Right? He motions to the people in the house to be silent, describes to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison and said, tell these things to James. 
and to the brothers. And so what happens is with Peter beginning, the apostles start to leave Jerusalem too. Right? So the 12 who stayed when everyone else left, uh, they start to leave Jerusalem too. And that doesn't mean all the Christians are gone, but, but fewer and fewer Christians are in the city. And, and James, who is known as James the Just, um, brother of Jesus, author of the book, uh, he will remain in the city until he's just about the last Christian there. Everyone else has left. And uh, he, he goes to and from the temple every day. He keeps the Old Testament law so well that no one can accuse him of anything. Um, and trying to get him to trip up, they, they give him a chance to speak in front of the people on a given day. This is closer to 70 AD. We're talking like a generation later. He's an old man at this point, but he's still there every day to let him talk. There's no more Christians in Jerusalem now. They're all out of Jerusalem. And he starts to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of his sermon, they kill him. But not before someone shouts out, I believe in you. And so in his death, James leaves at least one more Christian in Jerusalem, who I would imagine left before the Romans came in 70 AD. But we see here again, Peter just kind of vanishes. You see the ascension, like right? how it happens? He's like, he goes, 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 he's gone. God took him away. And we know from, from tradition, of course, he will go out to the Gentiles. He will preach his way up through past Antioch, and he'll end up in Rome. Or he'll die crucified upside down in Rome, as the story goes, right? That's not the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. I and mean, the fact that they built the entire uh, St. Peter's Basilica upon his, his uh, grave spot it might make one think of what Jesus says about those who build the tombs of the prophets. But I'll leave all that for another time. He ran toward his tomb. He ran toward his tomb. Just like you already are. You're not going to stop. It's not possible to stop running toward your tomb. The whole world's trying they're hasting everywhere, running like rats, and they're all going straight to the grave. You can dance there. You're going to walk there. You're going to hasten there with joy, not because of something in you, because that's the call. That's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. Let's go. Right? And because of the fact that he has chosen you, anointed you, put his Holy Spirit into your heart, each of these stories that's in the scriptures can't but inspire you to live your story in Christ today. Because you're not in first century Jerusalem. You're in 21st century Rockford, Illinois. It's a world away and it's not that different. You know? The fear is still there, the political powers and pressures are still there, the unbelievers are still there, and the fact that they can't stop us is still there. The fact that God is with you is still there. The fact that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah is still there. Run toward the tomb. In the name of Jesus. Amen.